Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Georgia. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University, and I'm joined by... Giselle Donnelly. I work at the American Enterprise Institute, where I'm a senior fellow, and also... Dalit Baruhaj, also a senior fellow at AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Today, um, we are joined by Mina Olander, who is a research fellow at FIA, or the Finnish Institute for International Affairs, and currently a visiting fellow also at the Center for European Policy Analysis here in Washington, D.C. Mina, it's great to have you with us. Um, we've all been through the last year or so, um, following with pleasure your tweets. <laughs> um, and uh, we have a few, uh, a few things that we want to talk to you about. Of course, Finland is um, a main element, but maybe we can start broad with Nordic security and where we are. Of course, the buzzword now or the buzz term is that the Baltic Sea with Finland um, having joined and Sweden already on the way of joining has become officially a NATO lake. Um, and, and with that in mind, you also talk about and have written about how the war itself and Ukraine's resistance and Ukraine's fighting back have also changed regional security. And so I want to ask you about that to get our conversation going and to also kind of maybe challenge or, or question the Uh, issue of the Baltic um, Sea now being 100% uh, NATO lake, because on the other side, we still have Russia there with um, two, uh, two borders or two um, ways of accessing um, the Baltic um, Sea, including with the enclave of Kaliningrad, and it's still a challenge. So tell us how you assess the situation now in 2023. First of all, thanks a lot for having me here. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Um, and I would say about your question that um, it is, of course, important to remember that um, Finland and Sweden joining NATO is a massive change in the whole Baltic Sea security architecture, but it's not an automatism. So um, it's, it's not like a silver bullet that itself just solves all our problems. Uh, this is basically the moment when the work really starts and uh, we have this window of opportunity and that is very much uh, thanks to Ukraine's resistance as you mentioned um, because Russia is currently getting its conventional force uh, depleted to a really remarkable extent in Ukraine um, so Ukraine has literally bought us time to get our regional security in order Um, there were several countries in the past 30 years that um, dismantled their territorial defense, um, um, Sweden, Denmark, Norway to an extent, a little bit less maybe, um, but now we have this chance to, to make all that right, figure out what is, a, what is the Russian threat in this region and how to counter it. So um, as soon as Sweden joins, 
we will have to start making uh, the NATO defense plans for the whole region and kind of start rethinking the regional security outside of the box of the the eastern um, of, um, the the EFP the enhanced forward presence. Um, so that's maybe my take where we are now. So basically, at the beginning of a very long road. It is fair to say that uh, Sanna Marin has been, you know, the favorite Nordic social democrat to to many of us, you know, in the neocon community, so to speak, uh, and. <laughs> And uh, particularly during during this war, uh, thanks to her very sort of strong posture towards Russia and 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 and, and her leadership, uh, and and so people have been asking this question of what, if anything, changes in Finland in terms of security, defense, Ukraine policy, willingness to to help Ukraine join EU and NATO going forward with this new cabinet led by, by Petri Orpo and, 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 and the Kokomus-led led coalition. I mean, the early signs seem quite encouraging, but, but you probably have a much deeper understanding of what is happening behind the scenes and where the different political parties are on, on, on some of these subjects. So anything you can, you can share on this would be appreciated. So Finland has a very strong uh, foreign and security policy consensus culture. And, and there's always um, a very, very strong continuity between different governments. So, um, especially on Ukraine and NATO, um, it was quite interesting. They weren't even election topics uh, because there's just such consensus um, across the political spectrum uh, on both the support to Ukraine and um, on the NATO membership that um, they just weren't like politically relevant questions. So Sanna Marin was a particularly visible and, um, and um, good at having these uh, mic drop moments um, because she's in this way like very to the point and it came naturally to her that when, when she was asked how how this war could end that she was like well of course Russia has to leave Ukraine so um, that was of course like a very good PR for Finland and, and she was great for Finland's kind of international image and everything and I doubt that Petteri Orpo our new prime minister can quite um, like live up to that standard uh, he's, he's a much more boring type of politician I, I'm afraid um, but uh, so I think that uh, you can expect less um, these kind of headlines uh, and and viral videos with him. Although who knows, um, we have to give him a chance, of course. But um, on the like bigger um, bigger lines, nothing will change. Finland is, as I said, like there's this understanding that as a small country with this kind of geo uh, geopolitical location. Um, <clears throat> we can't afford to be very like um, yeah we can't afford to have a lot of cracks in our society and politics uh, that can be exploited about about especially security national security um, so there are no big changes to be expected there um, actually in the in the government program that was released a couple of days ago there was this um, was the sentence on Ukraine's NATO membership that Finland will support 
uh, Ukraine's um, aspirations um, together with other allies. So it, it sounds like it's not the strongest formulation, but it means basically that Finland definitely um, supports Ukraine's NATO membership. Can I just quickly follow up on that and ask you about the language, because that's trickling down from every single country now. What exactly is the language? Is it um, if the conditions or the circumstances permit or just support, period? And so as far as like I haven't read the whole document, so I would have to double check this, um, whether there's anything more precise on it. But it says that Finland supports with uh, with the with the other allies. So um, and and I, I don't recall that there would have been any kind of caveat about the war ending or something something first. But I would have to double check that. Before we expand the aperture um, uh, even more, I do have a couple questions about uh, uh, Finnish accession to NATO and how, I mean, most, it's a good, there's no question that it is a good thing that strengthens the alliance in, in many, many ways, but it does change um, the equation for the alliance in the Nordic theater, if we can call that, which has heretofore been principally a maritime theater, uh, but obviously with the uh, and I'm not suggesting that attacking Finland over land is really an appealing, uh, uh, you know, choice for, for anyone, especially the Russians. But it does make you wonder, and, and, and because Finland has been so sort of autonomous in its security uh, posture uh, up until now, it does make you ask how this whole uh, a new arrangement is going to add to or shift alliance strategy making and force allocation and stuff like that. And in particular, in addition to the things that Finland will contribute to the joint uh, defense of, of Europe, uh, the question that really hasn't been very much asked is what would Finland like to get out of the alliance beyond the sort of Article 5 security guarantees, but are there practical elements of, um, you know, and again, much military cooperation has been going on just in the normal course of business uh, before now. But again, what did the Finns and especially the government and maybe the military leadership want to see uh, the alliance doing to help um, in the defense of in bolstering Finnish security? Um, well, Finland joined NATO um, most of all to maximize the deterrence. So the idea is, um, or was until last year, that um, we had our own national defense and that was the deterrence, so that like you know Russia would know that what a bad idea it is to to try and attack Finland because uh, we have kept up um, like precisely the kind of um, capabilities that we now see that Ukraine needs um, to defend against uh, the Russian invasion. 
but then there was this realization that you can't trust that to be enough and um, and that we should do uh, whatever um, we can to maximize the deterrence and minimize the, the likelihood of Russia ever again invading us. So that was basically the NATO membership um, decision, um, why, why it happened in the last year. And um, so interestingly, um, before this had been at all like decided on the highest political level, um, a little town in Western Finland um, with a population of 15,000 15, um, went ahead and uh, decided that they want a NATO base. So uh, this town um, in Western Finland called Kauhava, uh, which has 15,000 um, inhabitants, went ahead and decided that they want a NATO base. And this was after two weeks of NATO membership, um, before this had been at all really even discussed on the higher political levels. Um, so, so that was that was quite the funny um, demonstration of uh, what maybe regions uh, expect and think about the NATO membership now in the new government program. And again, I have only only skimmed it, but um, um, there was a mention mentioned that Finland would uh, like to have some some NATO elements in in Finland, maybe a training center or something like that. So this is indeed a good question because. Um, Finland gets asked at the moment uh, quite frequently on the one hand like what would you what can you contribute to the EFP in the Baltic states uh, but also do you want to have EFP elements in Finland and that kind of I think illustrates quite well that now with NATO, uh, now with Finland and uh, soon also hopefully Sweden in NATO um, NATO needs to start thinking about um, this arrangement in more broader terms because uh, Finland and Sweden joining just changes the equation so much that uh, the EFP may not be the only solution, um, the viable solution here. Obviously NATO already last year decided that um, it wasn't sufficient anyways and and it is now going back to this like forward defense or trying to, to rebuild a forward defense posture. Um, but um, I think this is quite a good illustration of how Finland is kind of in between there. And um, what I also find interesting is whether Finland will just consider itself a continuation of the eastern flank or will um, Finland go for kind of northern flank identity, for example, because Finland, uh, for Finland it's so important to always emphasize that we are a Nordic country, not, for example, a Baltic country, and so on, and definitely not an Eastern European country. So, so this is again this messed up um, European understanding of geography. Um, but so, so these are all quite interesting questions. And um, I would just like to add, because you mentioned that um, the theater has been mostly maritime so far, but now Finland brings this long land border. Um, I would like to add that there's another maritime theater further up in the Arctic that also comes into the picture now. So, and that is a whole new set of headache uh, for NATO. So that is also um, something quite uh, important to keep in mind. Just, uh, just for uh, translate for uh, regular viewers, um, EFP stands for Enhanced Forward Presence, which uh, refer to the um, small units that uh, from Western European countries mostly 
and the United States that have been rotating uh, through the Baltic states um, over the last five or six years. And um, uh, as, as Minna said, the alliance is now moving toward regularly permanently stationed forward forces such as those that were in West Germany, uh, although at a much smaller uh, level. Uh, uh, like Germany during the Cold War. Sorry, just just to, just to translate from military speak to English. If if, if I may just sort of jump in while we are on the subject of NATO, um, there is um, this this sort of conversation in 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 America about you know the increased importance of the Indo-Pacific and and Asia, which also raises this question of what NATO's role should be outside of a sort of traditional theater of operation and securing the security of you know of, of, of the eastern flank and of of europe more broadly and uh there are different voices within the alliance those who would like nato to just focus on its traditional role and and, and those who all feel comfortable with you know greater outreach to countries like japan and korea and and, and a possible european role in in the security in the indo-pacific does uh Finland's accession and, and and prospectively Sweden's accession make it more likely that uh, or less likely that NATO will play a role outside of its traditional area of operation so to speak well I think that in Finland there is quite a good understanding that um, of course we have to widen our horizon a lot um it, it's entirely fair to like point out that Finland has been so like focused on the on the own national defense for well basically eight decades that um, it is quite a challenge and that is actually one of the biggest challenges of Finland joining NATO um, the kind of changing mentality start, uh, starting to think in these like 360 degrees uh, uh, terms and and like um, about about your own national defense as part of collective defense and like what your contribution is is to very far away allies um, security and all that um, so what is interesting about the Indo-Pacific um, and and China and how that potentially links to the Nordic Baltic region is again the Arctic um, China is increasingly interested in in the Arctic region and um, and trying to establish more presence there. Um, this is of course also a factor in the Chinese-Russian relationship and how it shapes going forward. Um, so in a way, in the Arctic sphere, uh, China also needs to be countered there. And, and that is kind of like how it links um, from kind of European Arctic all the way to the Indo-Pacific. For example, the Northern Sea Route is becoming increasingly all year round navigable, which is very important for, for Russia, especially now that it needs um, the, the Asian markets, China and India even more for its energy um, exports um, because of the Western sanctions on uh, Russian energy products. This is like... Um, quite an important angle I think that is not yet sufficiently understood in in the US either um, like how kind of 
um, there is this quite direct link even between the European and the Indo-Pacific theater and and how this Northern Sea Route, for example, um, links these regions and theaters potentially much more closely. And, and then kind of like how like Russia is, of course, the, the one in, in, in between there. Um, so I think that Finland uh, is also quite aware of the, the limits of our <laughs> Uh, capacity so uh, we don't have the kind of navy that we could send a ship uh, to the Indo-Pacific that would make absolutely no sense either um, so I think that there is more this idea definitely that we should try to take as much responsibility in our own region as possible so that we then free allied um, capabilities from here to then like maybe be put into the Indo-Pacific or like to pay more attention there. So I think this is very much a question of like fair burden sharing uh, within the Alliance as well. Uh, I'm really glad you brought that up and that you're actually spelling out these connections that I don't think indeed you're right. We, we're not thinking about them sufficiently um, in the United States, and I would argue, uh, nor do we in Europe. So then, let me ask you kind of one question with with two sides to it. Um, on the one side, or the, the first part of the question would be, um, how do you then look at uh, the Arctic from a Finnish perspective in the context of NATO? Basically, to what extent do you think that Finland is going to um, further push the Arctic into NATO discussions? We know that it has been taking shape um, uh, over the last few years. Um, there's very much an ongoing conversation about that, including in Washington. But it seems to me, especially through what you're saying, being responsible or providing security for your own region, that that this could be a possible role of Finland making the Arctic more NATO or more of a NATO region. And, and I think this is important also when we're thinking, yes, of course, about China primarily um, from the perspective of the United States, but also from a Russian perspective, because Russia is defining its flank or arc of steel, as they call it, from the Arctic to the Mediterranean, not from the Baltic to the Black Sea, much broader than we do. Um, so this is the first part of the question. And then the second part of the question is, I guess, connected to a bit of a scoop. Um, the uh, Biden administration is likely going to, looking at the eastern flank next year, going to ask more questions and foster more of an understanding that particularly the two anchors, Poland and Romania, have to become more of a security provider for the region. And so then the second part of the question to you is, is Finland, do you see Finland becoming a third anchor on this um, flank? And how can, in the context of what you were just saying, um, with enhanced forward presence and possible troop contributions anywhere um, or, or military contributions overall, how can Finland um, then become more of a security provider beyond its own border? 
So, um, about the Arctic and whether kind of Finland will bring it into NATO in a way, um, I, I think certainly yes, because I mean, this is kind of um, um, an interesting question in the sense that the Arctic didn't feature a whole lot in Finnish defense thinking for a long time either. And it has been more of a recent development in the last couple of years um, that even Finland has like kind of moved from the very strong traditional focus on the on the Baltic Sea and southeastern um, Finland um, to view this region more comprehensively, kind of going from like the the Baltic Sea through the North Atlantic all the way to the Arctic. So this is also kind of a new trend in Finland. Um, um, it has like several reasons. First of all, like for Finland, of course, like the vicinity to Russian uh, population centers is much more in the southeast. Um, so Saint Petersburg is is not far away from Helsinki, only about 400 kilometers, um, and 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 that's kind of like where most of the border traffic happens and all that. Plus, that we have some very nice natural defense elements in uh, Lapland, in the northern part of Finland. For example, as a legacy of the, the Ice Age, when the ice melt, it uh, kind of was grinding um, the mountains that used to be spiky at the time, uh, they are not anymore, um, into like smaller rocks and, um, and uh, boulders. And we have this kind of like pretty vast fields of just rocks and boulders uh, in the forests, which are pretty difficult to, to cross, uh, for example. With yeah, exactly. Infantry tanks, something like that. Like just forget it. Um, so that's kind of like a like a practical situation uh, for Finland. And in in southeast, we have an incredible number of lakes all over the place. So there's almost no like straight road uh, going through it. So that's also like a big challenge for any kind of um, enemy movement from from there. Um, but yes, Finland will definitely, and this is particularly in interesting from the Norwegian point of view now that Finland joined NATO, because Norway has been so far kind of like the the sole gatekeeper of the of the high north, as they call it, um, in NATO, and Norway and Canada have been very much like keeping the Arctic off NATO's agenda, and. Um, this will change now because, for example, Norway used to have uh, this two-track or dual-track approach um, towards Russia, um, which was based on, on the one hand deterrence, uh, and that was provided by the NATO membership, and reassurance, which was kind of like good bilateral relations. The reassurance part um, included this kind of um, self-imposed limitations that the Norwegians don't like um, it being called that. Uh, they always uh, rather point out that it's calibrated deterrence, um, which is a which is a good way of putting it. It means that you can also recalibrate it when needed, which they are right now doing. But um, that they um, were refraining from, especially NATO exercises above a certain uh, um, degree, like in the north, in the northernmost uh, part of Norway called Finnmark, they wouldn't like hold exercises and so on. And now it's of course interesting, like if Finland just starts um, holding uh, massive NATO exercises in Lapland, 
it kind of, uh, you know, draws the carpet from under, <laughs> under Norway's approach in a way. And, um, and, and then like, there's not so much point anymore to this kind of um, self-imposed limitations on Norway, Norway's part. On the one hand, it can be also very good for Norway because then they don't anymore have the, the, the sole responsibility. They are not the only ones responsible for managing the NATO-Russia relationship in the Arctic. So, so it can be good or bad, depending on whom you ask uh, in Norway. Um, but that's very interesting in that sense. And I think there's definitely um, a strong expectation uh, in Finland and in Sweden as well that um, the Arctic will, of course, be part of the regional defense plans uh, once also Sweden is full member, because we have a lot of uh, defense cooperation with Sweden and Norway in, in the northern parts of our countries. For example, the air forces have been exercising uh, on an almost weekly basis already since 2009. And um, all of these existing things, of course, must be incorporated into NATO's defense plans then. And because um, this this region is such a big part of our countries, it can't be just like be left out uh, like that would be half of half of our country. Um, so there is definitely an expectation there um, to uh, for for NATO to kind of develop some kind of Arctic posture as well. And it is a it will be a tricky question uh, because Russia has its very core nuclear um, arsenal there in, in the form of the, the nuclear submarines, which um, constitute the uh, Russia's second strike uh, capability. So um, it will be kind of, uh, well, it, it will need some, some careful calibrating, let's say, um, how to, how to um, calibrate, especially, for example, US presence there. Um, but this needs to be addressed so that we don't um, have the problem in the future that there's some ambiguity left in the region that Russia then can can uh, use for its own purposes. About like what Finland, how how Finland could become like another anchor. I think that would be a very suitable role for Finland to be kind of in a way also a vector, as I mentioned, between the eastern front and the northern front because in a way you do have actually a northern front up there in the Arctic uh, with Norway. Um, so I think that would be a very very good idea. Um, Finland has of course right now um, capabilities geared very much toward defending our own eastern border uh, so it, it's possible that um, we need to develop some more kind of uh, mobile uh, elements um, that can be then deployed somewhere else. Um, but this will very much depend on the on the NATO um, targets and and um, planning process uh, when we get there. Um, an interesting factor is also the Nordic cooperation, which will now come into NATO. So. It already exists since 2009 uh, in the format called NORDEFCO, Nordic Defense Cooperation. And there is a whole new momentum on that um, since Finland and Sweden decided to join NATO and, and overall the invasion because like all the Nordic countries um, felt the urgency very, uh, very much. Um, and and um, everyone defines Russia as a major 
or the, uh, the, the, the security threat in the region. And so one very interesting example was, for example, um, was this um, memorandum of understanding that was uh, signed between uh, Finland, Sweden, uh, Norway and Denmark. Iceland doesn't have its own armed forces, so it's a little bit a different case. But uh, between the Nordic air forces um, that they will start developing or uh, developing the cooperation uh, into kind of operating the approximately 250 fighter jets that the Nordic countries have in total uh, as like one operational fleet. Uh, it won't mean that, that there will be one uh, single integrated air force, but basically that that you can have combinations of these four countries' um, air forces um, very flexibly deployed. Um, so that is, for example, a very interesting step. Um, I would expect something similar to happen um, in, in, in between the navies as well. It would be a very natural next uh, step to, to take. Finland and Sweden, for example, already have joint navy units and, and all that. So this is also kind of like a new element that comes into, um, into NATO in the sense that there is this high degree of cooperation and even integration already between the countries. Um, which is, I think, kind of um, unique um, within NATO. Yeah, almost running into a sort of hard time constraint. But before we let you go, we need to ask you about Germany, where you've lived and you've written on on, on, on German security policy, both the new um, security strategy, you have shared your thoughts on Twitter on on Germany's attitude towards future NATO enlargements, including uh, Ukraine's accession. Please give us a flavor of of what what your thoughts are thoughts are on on on, on the Scholz government's policies in this space. Well, I would say that my glass is increasingly half full. Last year, it was more half empty. Um, and there have been some very interesting developments this year um, in Germany, especially the the change in the Ministry of Defense. Um, the new new minister uh, Boris Pistorius has um, has had an interesting effect on on Germany's um, Titan Wende process. This like kind of um, effort to to um, take security seriously again. Um, so I think there is is very much hope for Germany. It's just the problem, or the problem remains, that the Germany is too slow to implement the changes. So, um, for example, the the national security strategy um, it reads more like maybe a kind of government report than an actual strategy document. It's a very good description of the the security environment and. Uh, the challenges that uh, the Germany is facing, um, but it kind of on many um, in, in many places it, it kind of lacks um, the how. You know, it describes the what, but it uh, and then also there's a long list of ambitions and aims, um, but um, it kind of doesn't really explain uh, how to get there. So um, it is a start. Uh, but it will require m a much more detailed kind of plan. And, and what I think was a little bit, um, yeah, regrettable is that um, the 2% uh, goal uh, of defense spending is only um, 
included um, or or it is only foreseen to be fulfilled as long as this 100 billion uh, special fund for the armed forces in Germany lasts. Uh, but uh, the strategy didn't foresee uh, like more long-term sustainable um, ways of the, the regular defense budget. So that kind of um, raises the question of sustainability of this, uh, this these changes that Germany is trying to implement um, and kind of like how seriously Germany really means it in the long term. Um, and on, on Ukraine's NATO membership, um, I think that it's kind of a tricky question uh, for Germany's government because they have they have been very um, cautious about any kind of um, escalation and also because um, this is something that Chancellor Scholz um, repeats uh, frequently that we can't do anything that uh, could lead to a NATO-Russia war and of course the idea is then that if Ukraine joins NATO before this war um, is over that could lead precisely to this uh, NATO-Russia war. So I think that is uh, in Germany um, what keeps the government awake regarding this question. You know, um, there's a sort of, you know, uh, existential waiting for Olaf, waiting for Germany dimension to to this melodrama. So I, I, at this point, like the Zeitenwende speech is almost 18 months in the rearview mirror. And I haven't, as, as a sometime uh, participant in the writing of national security documents, uh, hesitate to read any more ever again in my life. At some point, you have to say, you know, we need to judge these people by what they do, by their behavior rather than their aspirations or their statements uh, of intent. And, you know, whether they spend the $100 billion before or after uh, the end of the Russo-Ukrainian war is, is an interesting you know, drinking game that maybe we should have at some point. So, Minna, look, you've paid as close attention to this as anybody that I can think of. If you had to say right now which, how this will play itself out, you know, are the Germans waiting for the situation to sort of return to normal, and which they can go back to being, uh, you know, uh, Angela Merkel's Germany, or is there a real sea change uh, afoot that we that we really should be patient and uh, but but confident that that it'll all turn out for the best? There's this perfect German word to answer this question, and it's "jein." <laughs> uh, exactly. So Jain means yes or no. Um, <laughs> um, so I believe that it has to no, at no point be the problem that Germany would act in, in bad faith or that they would be, of course, like they are not enthusiastic about having to do all the military stuff. Like that just doesn't 
come naturally to modern day Germany and that's like um, very uncomfortable for them. I, I believe that there is a genuine willingness to um, get their own house in order, like get their armed forces back to into some kind of shape again and um, and because it, it has like it has become quite embarrassing actually like the state of the German armed forces so so there is this willingness to get that in order <clears throat> I think that there's also a genuine willingness to play a bigger role in European security um, but the problem is kind of like lack of competence um, in the sense that because security and defense <clears throat> were like such irrelevant policy fields for so long um, that wide, wide parts of the um, of the political leadership and even in the parliament there's there's just not much like understanding of basic how deterrence works um how like like why you need uh defense in the first place um and and all of this is kind of even harder to communicate to the to the public um uh, which has been very much there's actually also a good swedish word they call themselves kind of uh peace damaged <laughs> uh, that because there was such a long long time of period of peace that they have kind of forgotten how it is if there is no peace uh, so I think that the Germans are definitely also in that sense like kind of peace damaged although the the period of peace has been much shorter in in Germany than than in uh, Sweden but um, you are absolutely right that you always have to look what what is being done and not only what is being said and um, um, my my worry is about Germany that despite good intentions, it just takes too long, and um, the momentum will kind of blow over at some point. The urgency is already less than than a year ago um, in the in the political leadership, and um, the population is at this moment still very supportive of Ukraine and also um, of the higher defense spending, but that will not last forever. And at some point it will be hard uh, to explain to the German population why investments should be made in war fighting uh, gadgets instead of, I don't know, um, um, yeah, and like childcare infrastructure and, and other things that have just like not been invested in. Uh, during the Merkel era, so I think that there is a genuine willingness and and an attempt, but um, but the how is again the problem that like Germany is struggling with like how, with figuring out how to do this and especially how to do it fast enough. I'm going to take advantage of having the last word to say here, kind of rhetorically, what would European security be without having to wait for the Germans? I was reading yesterday, I think, this piece um, about forward defense in NATO, um, which made me understand that forward defense is something that we actually invented at the end of the 40s um, as we were creating NATO. And even back then, or, uh, around 1950, the issue was how do we convince then Western Germany to contribute troops? <laughs> so, um, so it seems like, you know, 
European security in this instance too has something cyclical about it and, um, and would, would lose some of its charm if we wouldn't have this problem. Mina Olander, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. From me, Julia Joja, and my friends. Giselle Donnelly and... Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod, one word, and sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.